Well, hello again. I always feel a little weird coming over here and saying good morning when I've, you know, just putting on a different hat. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, good morning. And I wanted to say it's so nice to see so many different outfits, uh, different people representing different uh, teams for our uh, March Madness thing we're doing a little bit later. I realized after I got in here, I figured this would be a big hit. I'm Indiana University, right? Which I thought would go over real well here in Central Rural Michigan. Actually, uh, I don't have any, uh, uh, you know, affinity there at all. So I'm with you on that. But I do have some local colors. Or Vestberg, right? I got red or white. Somebody told me about that. So we're, we're going to go with that one. <laughs> Bobby Knight, you know, chairs and all that. Yeah, that's, that's no. But as we uh, uh, move on forward, if you've been following our sermon series so far, maybe you'd be thrilled to note uh, through the book of Daniel, this is the big one. The message so often we think of when we hear the name Daniel. I was talking with uh, Cody this week about the songs for the song service, and he asked me a couple of times, where are we at? Oh, yeah, you know, only the, the Daniel and the lions. You know? So, uh, like David and Goliath, you know, Noah and the worldwide flood, it seems the story of Daniel versus the lions, it's just one of those Old Testament moments that we know and we love, right? There's just something about a story where God delivers his people from what appears to be impossible odds. There's something about a story like that sticks with us. And maybe that's why we're so familiar with this chapter. How do we know that these are such impossible odds for Daniel? You know, be thrown by this current king, king named of Darius, into this den of hungry beasts to be left to hang in. And the answer is this. Daniel wrote this book himself, and he ain't a lion. Is it safe? Chicken wire's coming. Liberal scholars might say something about the first, uh, first six chapters of Daniel, like, well, all these stories we've been reading, we've been spending our time in, in the, this what we call the narrative half of the book, Daniel in the Den of Lions, these are just legends. These are just Jewish legends that were compiled later, you know, 200 years before Christ. And, it, and to answer these people, Daniel himself says he wrote this book. He himself says he wrote this book in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. Interestingly enough, Jesus himself actually confirms Daniel as the author of the book of Daniel. Um, I believe that, yes, Matthew 24, verse 15. So that's what we do with that. One more fun fact, the rest of the book after this chapter 6, after the narrative that we think so much of, it does go into a different genre of writing altogether. It'll make for a little bit of an a interesting change for our series. Instead of narrative, uh, the book becomes more of a collection of prophecy and some end-time study, what uh, theologians call eschatology. But I'm getting ahead of where we are. So if you'd open your Bibles with me to, to Jan, Daniel chapter 6, to the story of Daniel verse Lions. And uh, Luke, like they say before many a great fight. Ladies and 
but we can hear it again if you want. But I told him to loop it. He didn't think I was serious. Wanted to see who was awake. Um, God is in control. And can I hear an amen, an amen to that? That's where we're going to end up this morning with this famous rumble. Last week's king over Babylon, if you remember, what was his name? Belshazzar. We talked about King Belshazzar in chapter 5. If you remember, two decades after Nebuchadnezzar, the king which we opened, we spent so much time with uh, from Daniel chapters 1 to 4. Well, this week, meet another new boss, different than the oldest boss. Today, we're going to get to know King Darius in chapter 6 of Daniel. Last week, uh, I mentioned some biblical commentary that uh, said Cyrus the Great, the king of Medo-Persia, was able to seize this kingdom from Belshazzar by leading his men through the river duct in the Babylonian wall. That's one way this might have happened. And we pointed out that Scripture ends in Daniel chapter 5 with this Darius receiving the kingdom. And we're actually going to hear both names at the end of our text this morning, the highlighted text in verse 28. We're going to get to this as the very last thing today. And if you've got your Bibles open with me, again, the first thing that you'll notice is this name, King Darius. And one thing you might notice if you start reading through the scripture here, if you start skimming it a little bit, is King Darius is no spring chicken when it comes to leadership. He's not Belshazzar. He's not going to throw a big party at the palace and not leave any guards at the city gate, right? He, he, he knows what he's doing, it seems. King Darius knows how to delegate responsibility throughout his kingdom. He also knows how to ensure accountability for it. And we see this happening at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1, Darius appoints uh, satraps. These guys were governors over specific regions. He splits them 120 different ways. That's a lot of governing going on. 120 different ways. He's got three officials over each governor. This was to guard against any corruption. Seems like the guy knows what he's doing a little bit. And if you skim with me through verse 3 here in the chapter, you'll immediately see the favor that Darius gives Daniel. The text says that Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. How'd you like that said about you by the Holy Spirit? An excellent spirit was in you. That's quite a compliment. Text goes on, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. One commentator notes, we would hardly be wrong to conclude that is before God gave Daniel once again favor in the sight of this Medo-Persian king. It was all because God is in control. But what happens? How does Daniel go from riding in on promotion under the king to wrestling with some lions? And by the way, like last week we had that word party in with no G. This week we've got this word wrestling with no G. People like to say it down south where I'm from, uh, you know, Indiana. It's true. They like wrestling down there. How did Daniel get from being on top of the palace heap to the bottom of the lion's den? It all comes down to something we might call professional jealousy. Christian songwriter Steve Taylor wrote, There's only three things in life of any certainty. Number one is death. Number two is taxes. Number three is professional jealousy. 
And verse 4, as we can tell in the text, makes it clear that these other government officials, the ones over whom Daniel had been given promotion, started looking for a way to find fault with him because of his favor with Darius. And we've never seen that happen at government level, right? Which hunts like that can't happen. Can't be done. You know, if we wanted to, we could probably drop names of some Supreme Court justices or, or some presidential candidates here and there. When the tide turns favorably, especially when people seem to be united in the direction of one of God's guys or of any individual whose philosophy threatens the status quo, it's amazing how the devil can cause some division, isn't it? Many years ago, I was uh, hired into a management position uh, at a fish restaurant. Oh, boy. The owner, who was a, a, a bit scatterbrained, depended on a staff of part-time rotating teenagers and three full-time middle-aged supervisors who, come to find out, weren't the most trustworthy. I'm not sure what kind of uh, better uh, business experience she expected of a 21-year-old who'd flung burgers and fries onto a plate for five years. But if I could go back and work for her all over again, I'd ask the day I was hired. A uh, paragraph of expectations for the job was exactly what I failed to obtain when I started there. And after two weeks of being completely ignored, not only by the tired supervisors, professional jealousy, and the teenagers who at least performed the job they were supposed to be working on the clock, guess what? I got the ax. It's just not working out, I was told. Mrs. Smith said, name change, because I, I can't remember her name now. It's been too many years. You've had ample time to learn the job you were hired to perform. Now, I hadn't spent two weeks uh, choosing to ignore the ins and outs of managing the tough business of a fish restaurant. But I'd spent two weeks with a group of young worker bees who couldn't explain and three power players who, seeking a way to do away with a new guy, wouldn't explain the workflow. I also hadn't spent any time with Mrs. Smith, who, for some reason, believed owning a restaurant and having the work delegated meant one never actually had to be at the said business. Works well. Within a year, this restaurant had clo closed its doors, by the way. In the grand scheme of things, this story doesn't exactly scream mass conspiracy, but it does paint a picture of what a jealous group who wants to out a new company leader is capable of doing. Doesn't stop in fish restaurants. A friend of mine in ministry endured similar treatment by his peers within a church organization. It went on for months. He left. When power players of a team decide they'd rather conspire against rather than work with, someone is bound to lose. And that's what happens here for Daniel in the text. By the end of verse 5, they say traps have already decided they're going to set a trap for Daniel. Do you see what I did there? The text says, in connection with the law of his God, they figure out this is the only way we're going to get this guy. Look at how they do it. Go ahead and skim in the text through verse 9. The group comes together to Darius, and verse 7 says this, the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. 
Now, at first glance, we might think the pressure these officials are putting on the king here is a rather obvious jab at Daniel's uh, monotheism or worship of one God, Yahweh. And yes, it is that. And what these satraps are proposing to Darius is certainly similar to Nebuchadnezzar's offense back in, remember chapter 3 with the golden image? We talked about that a few weeks ago. But there's another side to their proposal here that surely appealed to Darius. One commentator notes, you see, by requiring everyone to make their petitions to King Darius, it's only going to help establish his rule, isn't it? I'm sure he didn't really think about it a whole lot. All matters that have to go through him. 30 days, ah, the king's not going to give it a whole lot of scrutiny. Not going to think of all the ins and outs here. He's making it a law of the land would prevent Darius from reversing it once he realized his boy Daniel was a victim of it. It goes to show the strength of, of politicians, politics. Many politicians against one, no matter how high he ranks, when professional jealousy is a part of the equation, doesn't it? Getting back to verse 9. So King Darius signs this document, injunction, sentencing Daniel's very life, making it a very good thing that Daniel's life was ultimately in much higher hands. Amen? But the next part of this text is, to me, the best part of the entire chapter. The entire chapter. Not that the upcoming uh, rumbling with the lines isn't exciting. It's exciting. But verse 10 of Daniel 6 is so incredible, so astounding, so, I believe, significant to not just this chapter of our text, but the book as a whole. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about it this morning. What did Daniel do when he found out about the king's ordinance? What did he do? That whoever makes petition to any god or man except to the king should be cast into the den of lions. How did Daniel respond? Charles Swindoll once wrote, I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. Let me say that again because I need to hear it. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And how... Uh, what is amazing to me is the attitude Daniel shows in this response. Let's start with what the Bible doesn't say, Daniel responds. He could have. It doesn't say, verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he threw a big fit. People could hear him three houses over. Daniel could have certainly responded differently to the news. Verse 10 could have read, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went home and fired off half a dozen nasty comments on Twitter. He went viral. He verbally destroyed these Medo-Persian people that got across that Babylonian border. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't even say when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he planned his escape by going to the king and requested that one of them take leave of the kingdom for 30 days. I mean, I just thought of that. That's not a terrible plan, right? If, either, if one of those guys was gone, I mean, there couldn't have been any disobeyed injunction. I mean, Daniel had some political clout. He could have gone to Darius and figured something out, right? Or verse 10 of chapter 6 could have said this. Uh, he could have responded to the king's order this way. When, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went home and began pry, pry, uh, try that again, praying privately to his God, whispering in the shadows so that the injunction might be obeyed, but that God could still be worshipped. Daniel wasn't forced to make a lot of noise about his prayer life, was he? He could have just gone home, bowed his head quietly, mumbled his thanks to heaven, so many of us uh, today can be at prayer time in a country where we actually have freedom of religion. Ouch. 
preacher, you didn't have to go there. But what does Daniel do? What does Daniel do? What does the word says he does? He trusts God. He doesn't do any of these things. He leaves the matter in the hands of God. These government officials have known full well Daniel's pattern of worship. They've observed his going home. They've seen him getting on his knees. They know he prays to the God of Israel. And that's exactly the reason why they've targeted him before the king. But without missing a beat, look in the word for Daniel's response to this conspiracy. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel knows what's ahead. He knows he's been set up. He figures his fellow government goons are going to get the drop on him. And yet he goes right on and bows, not to his government, but to his God. He takes the situation not into his own hands, but he leaves it in the hands of his maker. You know, some of us, we talked uh, about this a little bit this morning uh, in Perry's excellent Sunday school class. I'm amazed by the way the Holy Spirit works. Um, some of us, if we were in Daniel's shoes today, uh, facing either the drop of our faith or the drop into a lion's den, what would we do? We, maybe we'd choose to go godless. It would at least be a temptation. But Daniel continues to give his glory and his praise and his petition only to Yahweh. There's just not any question about it. It's as if nothing had changed. One commentator notes, Daniel prayed publicly in defiance of the law of the Medes and the Persians because he believed he had no other choice. Yes, Daniel's prayer life was so consistent they could literally pick the time to gather outside his window to catch him in the act. Wow. Maybe we're tempted to say it wouldn't happen to us Christians in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Like Daniel, we'd never have to choose between God and government or society's whims today. But unless we haven't heard a news headline in 10 years or more, we know full well this is already happening, don't we? You know, conservative Christianity in the United States of America may not be illegal, but there are certainly powers at work attempting to overpower it. One publication mentions a religious charity in Illinois recently forced to shut its adoption services rather than place children with same-sex couples as the state required. Did you hear about this one? The actions of Christian counselors, court clerks, photographers, and bakers have all been the target of liberalism in recent years. The author continues, in each of these cases, the Christians were not trying to impose their values on anyone. Instead, liberals and non-believers were doing the imposing and using anti-discrimination laws to do it. Just yesterday, I saw the following local news headline. The state of Michigan did no longer contract with adoption agencies that won't place children in same-sex homes. Just saw this yesterday. That's our government. So it's just like the days of Daniel. These people are in our neighborhoods and they've passed by our, the doorways and they know how we worship. And if they can't force us to change the way we worship, they'll get us thrown to the lions by discouraging to the fullest or even outlawing what the Bible says, won't they? So this means, what does this mean? Well, among other things, it means macroevolution is taught as fact, creation is myth, 
It means full-term abortion is made legal with gender considered not male or female, but third option, option X. It means children are no longer strengthened by the security of Christian and traditional family values. Instead, transgenderism and pedophilia are slowly being instituted and normalized. It's happening right around us. And socially speaking, conservative Christians who are refusing to get on board with these changes are labeled homophobes, bigots, and on the wrong side of history, aren't we? Now, I don't know about you, but I'd rather be on the right side of God's story. I realize we should expect this kind of treatment no matter our location. The Bible says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. You know, as one source reports, there are many places on earth where being a Christian is the most dangerous thing you can be. The reality is many of these Daniels across the globe right now are getting limited news coverage by mainstream media, such as the Nigerian Islamic groups that have killed hundreds of Christians over the last two months of this year between West African plains. Sometimes the persecution from these extremists, it might come with the choice. The choice is we'll spare your family from death by firing squad if they'll renounce Jesus Christ and come over to Islam. But this is similar to the tolerance of the Babylonians regarding the God of Israel. The same tolerance Christians today are given in China, North Korea, or any of the other places around the world where, again, there is no tolerance for the one true God at all. How long it happens here in this way how long before americans too have to make a choice between the powers that be and the power that rules over us all and will you and i more importantly will you and i have the courage to get down on our knees like daniel down on our knees when persecution means our very lives Because like a March Madness bracket, history will tell which side we were ultimately on, won't it? Back to our story. Verse 11, the conspirators, they find Daniel, as they know they will, making petition, making plea before his God. Next stop is to go to Darius, verse 12. Just love this part, you know. It's like, got a couple little kids here. I could name some names, but I won't. I don't know any little kids. No, I've never seen anything like this before. Verse 12, guess what, king? You're just not going to believe this. You know that you just placed that guy, and you know how you just signed the little piece of paperwork? You you just drafted that injunction placing anyone, uh, caught petitioning anybody beside you in the lion's den? You should look at what your boy Daniel's doing. Read down through verse 13. You're just not going to believe this. Daniel's petitioning somebody beside you. That's right, the one from Judah. We we didn't just catch him petitioning his God once but three times a day. Can you believe it? I just can't believe it. The nerve. I can just hear these guys overacting this, this whole little skit, you know? Petitioning the Lord in prayer. They're standing before Darius. They're pulling a Jim Morrison. You cannot petition the Lord in prayer. If you notice that Darius isn't exactly thrilled with what he has to do next. Now he's obligated by the law. He just signed, look with me in verse 14. The king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. He set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Oops. He's distraught. 
He obviously thinks quite a lot of Daniel, and he may even have a bit of reference for the God of Israel, even if it wasn't enough to keep him from uh, signing that last piece of paper. But it's safe to say the king knows he's messed up. He signed Daniel's life away, and he's sick about it. And to make worse, make the matter worse, look at verse 15. King, remember, you can't change what you just signed, what you just enacted. And the best King Darius can do when he acts upon the injunction he just signed is to wish Daniel as he's thrown in with the beast a nice fall. Verse 16, I'm just, I'm imagining uh, Darius just as distraught as possible when I was running through this whole scenario in my mind. I don't know why, but I was actually imagining Dom DeLuise in the role of Darius. Daniel! I'm so sorry, Daniel. <laughs> May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. Verse 17, Daniel hits the floor of that lion's den and is covered and it's sealed to make it official that the king followed his own injunction. And Darius has no choice but to head back home. And scripture says he's just a hot mess about what happened. Look at verse 18. The king can't eat. He can't sleep. He's not up for any activities of any kind. He knows his planned right-hand man, Daniel, is in that den of lions and he placed him there and his hands are tied and getting him out. But whether King Darius likes the situation or not, Daniel is going to have himself a rumble. Now you're thinking, preacher, you do realize we're doing March Madness? That's basketball. And I do, which is uh, why in the spirit of this NCAA single elimination tournament, which has become one of the most famous annual sporting events in the United States, thank you, Wikipedia, I'm now going to switch the Daniel versus the Lions metaphor a bit. Let's talk hoops. Preacher, do you have to? <laughs> Change my mind. <laughs> Found this interesting article this week written by Dean Oliver, a former pro player, assistant coach, and scout who founded the online journal of basketball studies. Anybody heard of this guy? Uh, Dr. Dean Oliver has actually developed a set of uh, computations and conclusions for basketball strategies based on years of research into game statistics. And I found this article by a legal advisor by the name of Tom Lyons, and I made sure to credit him because he's a legal advisor. <laughs> Discussing uh, Oliver's uh, PhD in engineering experience as a computer consultant and risk analysis and Rick, uh, oh boy, risk analysis. Analyst. Whew. I was close. Computer consultant and risk analyst. There we got it. I'm going to put that word in every sermon for two months. How this has allowed Dr. Oliver to arrive at his set of methods for the game. Maybe you've heard of some of these before. They've been noted, but they've been confirmed by computer science here. Do you know how a basketball team plays to win? And the data says this, score more points than the other team. No, it goes deeper than that. That's what all the computers are telling us. Dr. Oliver writes following, based on statistical analyses, the four most important keys for team success in basketball are, number one, shoot a high field goal percentage. Number two, do not commit turnovers. Number three, get offensive rebounds. Number four, get to the foul line frequently. And Dr. Oliver has come to this conclusion after all his uh, research and entering things into computers. Teams that consistently win games do at least three of these things well, and if a team doesn't shoot well, it better do the other three things very well. 
Now, there's, there's more we could say about Dr. Oliver's findings on team chemistry and utilizing the underdog, etc. Info for ball coaches of all levels, but we'll save that for someone that knows a little bit more about the game than I do. And there's nothing revolutionary maybe here in the findings, but there is a reason why I'm mentioning it this morning. Each player on a basketball team makes a choice how they're going to play, don't they? They make a choice. And we have physical coaches like Dr. Oliver and what they've taught these team players. Are they going to remember these things when they go out and play the game? Are they going to depend on one another as a team, no matter who they're playing against? Are they going to follow experience that's come before them? Or are they going to think of themselves as individual players with, with hot hands, disregarding the time and, and the experts and the coaches and the trainers? What is proven to be true about team success? Are they going to disregard team play? You know, on, on the ball court, when it's team versus team, it's the moment of truth, right? And to some extent, the same was true in that Babylon den when it was Daniel versus the Lions. Daniel had a choice to make. He'd had the same choice for the last five chapters of Scripture. You know, Daniel probably could have easily been uh, dismembered by those claws and those jaws of those lions. But he remembered what his ultimate spiritual coach, the Lord, had taught him. The experience that came before proved to Daniel to, to depend totally on God, no matter what Daniel was up against. Daniel's biggest issue when he was thrown into the lion's den was not lions. It was remembering God was in control. It was remembering God was in control. And we know from the outcome, Daniel did just that. The Bible doesn't go into details, specifics. But I'd like to guess that while King Darius was losing sleep over Daniel's place in the lion's den, Daniel was probably sleeping like a baby. I'd like to picture him stretched out over the backs of a couple of big furry opponents. But can you imagine the, this post-game excitement that must have filled King Darius? Verse 19 of our text, look, look in your Bibles. This was an overnight underdog victory. Go ahead and skim with me up through the end of verse 24. He says, O Daniel, servant of the living God, Darius calls out to Daniel, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? I'm sure the king wasn't expecting to hear much more at this point than, than, than the roar of the crowd, right? <laughs> Literally. But then not only is Daniel still alive, he's greeting Darius with a respectful blessing. W would you have done that? Verse 21, King, he says, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. Also before you, O king, I have done no harm. See, through all this, Daniel remained faithful to his God. God was in control. And he also uh, remained faithful to the king. He may have been persecuted, but Daniel was also delivered. In verse 24, the punishment that the conspirators meant for Daniel was in turn put upon them, wasn't it? So now we're ready for this closing text, our highlight for the week. Read it with me. Tony read it earlier. 
Let's talk through it again. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Because God was still in control and he knew it. Those odds, I'm sure they seemed insurmountable. And no matter how we place Daniel down in, down in that den against those lions, it's not going to look very good on a March Madness bracket. But Daniel played for the side that always wins. He had the advantage. So from Jerusalem to Babylon, Daniel was still on the winning team. That ain't lion. I guess the question remains for us, whose side are we on? Do you ever feel like you've been thrown to the lions? Do you have the patience? Do you have the courage? Can you depend on he who has always been faithful to you? Because it's going to happen to each one of us if it hasn't already in some, in some way. And at the end of the day, we will either be on the side of the beasts or the Lord's. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your, your holy word. I thank you for the book of Daniel. Lord, over the last few weeks as we've been talking through the narrative of, of this uh, person who was so committed to you. We learn of his character. Lord, we see that despite all that he had to endure in ancient Babylon, he remained faithful to you. Lord, my prayer is that those of us here today in, in uh, modern Babylon, a world that, that is coming to an end, a world, a place that is not our own, but one in which you're going to return and you're going to take us home someday. I pray that we, too, would stand firm on your promises. Lord, so often we think it's, it's about what we do or, or what we need to do or what we've done. And Lord, ultimately, it's always about your power. You're acting through us. You're acting in this world, your place in creation, and outside of it as well. Lord, help us to always remember that you're in control. We have so much pain and, and so, so many hurts and hang-ups and uh, sins and consequences of sins that, that we, we have to work through, Lord. 
Help us to hang on to you. Help us to trust, even when we're in those moments when it seems the bleakest for us. Because you're still in control. We may not have the answers, but we know that you do. Lord, we, we, we wait for the day. We, we hang on your words of Scripture. We depend on the blood of your Son. We pray, Jesus, come quickly. Take us home. And in the meantime, Lord, as we're waiting, we pray that you would use us in this place to bring others home with us. Thank you for your love, grace, and mercy. And it is in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. Ultimately, if you haven't made that decision to play on the side of the Lord, you're kind of still caught up in that lion's den. And so uh, we, we have an invitation today, as we do every Lord's Day. If you haven't gone down into those waters of baptism and come up a new creature in Jesus, we invite you to do that. We're going to stand and sing a song today that I think really encapsulates the message. That is trust and obey. It's another old song most of us know pretty well. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. For thousands of years, God's people have had the choice. God is calling each one of us today to trust and obey as well. Would you stand as we sing?